Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out. My name is Noah, but you probably know me better as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and you probably know me as 12-Tone. And today we're going to be talking about music criticism. I don't know where your head's at with this, but... For me, I think it probably makes the most sense to start with a relatively narrow scope and then sort of expand out from there in terms of what music criticism is. Yeah, sure. Like, so for me, I guess to start, I would probably want to look at stuff where you might conceivably expect someone to give a song or an album a grade, right? Yeah. Like not necessarily, they might not, that might not be the exact thing, but like questions where like, how good is this album is a central question, yeah, sometimes it's a grade. Sometimes it's also just general sort of like positive, negative recommendation. Yeah, yeah. But the the point is, based on my opinions as the critic, should you listen to the album? Yeah. Or the song or whatever it is, or the artist? Yeah, well, and I think it's it's sort of, that's the first thing that I think comes to mind for a lot of people when you talk about music criticism. It is sort of this yeah. kind of age-old model. Honestly, I don't I don't actually know when it first began, but I know it, it was definitely around uh, as early as like the 50s. Uh, I'm sure there were jazz critics in the 40s. This sort of culture of, yeah, you know, somebody who their job is sort of to be a cultural barometer who you will read, you know, because you can't listen to all of the music out there, you'll trust yeah. them to be able to be paid for this and curate what they think you should listen to. That's that's at least, you know, in the ideal world, yeah. how that role is supposed to function in a music culture. Yeah, what the vision is. And like on, on Origins, and like I am not a historian, so I want to be careful about how much of an expert I present myself as here. But my understanding, based on research I've done for various videos that touched on this sort of thing, is that in one way or another, and maybe not in the literal giving a grade sense, but in that sort of cultural barometer, what is the good music sense, this goes well back into the 19th century. Like, this was a thing as like, quote unquote, art music, high art music, stuff like, you know, symphonic, Beethoven, whatever's, were becoming less for the noble class and more for the middle class, more accessible to more people in across Europe. And especially Germany, a lot of this is always especially Germany because music culture and history is complicated. But like this very much became a thing where people would write about like what the good concerts were, what the good symphonies were. And that was a way of informing and guiding the public in that sort of, again, cultural barometer way. Again, I don't know that they were giving Beethoven a eight out of 10 or anything, <laughs> but sorry, to be fair, 8.5 out of 10, like that's, give him his credit. But, you know, that's harsh, but fair. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think I mean, I think when you look at it, sort of the the role of that in a pre mass media world makes a whole lot of sense. You know, like it. Yeah. I think it's something that it's very reasonable that especially, you know, you do have this a, a lot of this is born out of an emergent middle class, but they don't have you know, as much disposable income and, you know, yeah. things are a little more expensive. So if you're going to go out and, you know, spend your night at the town, going to a concert hall, or, you know, even, even you know, if you look sort of post-recording, if you're going to go out and buy a record, it's useful for you to have some sort of idea of what you can expect. And I mean, I, th I think that's something that if we can kind of get into it a little bit, one of the roles yeah. as well in this is, you know, a, a good critic 
doesn't just say this is good or bad. A good critic also gives sort of a description, whether, you know, sometimes through metaphorical language, sometimes through just describing sort of exactly what's happening in the song. Different criticism has various ways of doing it, but they want to sort of show you what it is that's going on in the song. So when you go out and go to the show or go buy this record or something, you'll have somewhat of an idea of what's to come. Yeah, I think that also speaks to a point that I wanted to highlight, which is that one might expect, given who we are, a focus on, you know, giving grades and scores and whatever as being an appeal to objectivity and a way of saying, like, this is this album is 70% good or whatever. I don't really think that's what's happening. At it, and I don't think that's the impression of what's happening. I think that most people don't actually view those as objective things. And it's not meant to be viewed as, a, as an objective thing. It is still very much someone's subjective opinion. They are just presenting themselves and possibly have earned the reputation and the ability to present themselves as people who have taste either good opinions or at least yeah taste or you know opinions that match yours yeah there's a reason to believe that if this particular person likes an album you will too yeah and you know you see it with critics the kind of quintessential one through a lot of the 60s is Christgau um Robert Christgau yeah. who's someone who people form a relationship with a critic and you know get to understand sort of what that critic looks for, what they value and stuff like that. And yeah, yeah. in in general, then forms a relationship, continuing to read that critic stuff. I think a lot of the sort of cult of personality around critics really came around like in the 60s with the rise of rock and especially the rise of sort of alternative magazines. Like Lester Bangs yeah. and Cream Magazine sure. is someone who had like some really sort of you know, Lester Bangs is kind of the blueprint for your, like, Fantano-style criticism, where a lot of what he says is, and, you know, I've never spoken to Lester Bangs, so I can't say this yeah. for sure, but seems to me to be kind of intentionally incendiary. You know, like, it seems oh, yeah. like he's he's trying to say things that will sort of get a rise out of music fans and get music fans to kind of take attention. You know, some of the some of the births of what we now might call hot takes. Yeah, I mean, on Lester Bangs specifically, he is one of the leading candidates for the person who invented the genre name heavy metal, and yeah. he did it as an insult. There's a lot of spunk and personality in his reviews of that era yeah. that are part of the appeal, but it's also a funny thing where, I guess this is a bit of a transition, but I think, I think it's still relevant. Like, I think one of the things that I think people get sort of wrong about criticism and reviews when they're looking back at it, when you're looking back at historical reviews, is yeah. people tend to look at individual reviews and sort of draw meaning from individual reviews. I think you can do that. But in reality, when you're looking at a critic, what you should be looking at is sort of a broad body of their reviews. And sort of from that, you can get into the head of, what does this person think about music? What does this person yeah. value in music? And do those values align with my values? Yeah, or do they, you know, if you're doing it, especially when you're looking back historically, if you're doing it as sort of cultural research, it can be 
more important to look at like do those values align with you know the broader culture yeah the like, general consensus. is lester bangs's opinions on these songs and albums and artists lining up with what other major critics are saying like you know those sorts of questions become very important but i think you know if we're looking at contemporary critics again a lot of the appeal of that is trying to find what you will relate to i think kind of what you're getting at is you're trying to create expert consensus and to find expert consensus and then often yeah. i think one of the big things that kind of comes out of that search is the idea that through expert consensus you will be able to reinforce your taste and say that you have like i think that's often one of the things where i start to really take issue with a lot of music criticism yeah. is not necessarily in the critics themselves doing it but is in the reaction to the critics where you know they're kind of they're kind of gets to be this thing where people say oh you know well all of these critics say that, you know, this album is good and I like this album. So therefore, this album must be good. And if all of the critics say it's good, I must have good taste. And in reality, it's like, no, if all the critics say that album is good, it just means that all of the critics like that album. It, it's not it's yeah. not necessarily any statement on quality at all, at least as far as our vision of quality works. A lot of that is... Because I want to be careful because I, I don't want to, again, I think it's important to recognize that I think most people do recognize that critique and review are subjective. Like, yeah, I think that most people will not look at Anthony Fantano giving an album a 9 out of 10 and being like, that is a 90% album. Like, that's like, just by the objective metrics of musical quality, this one has 90%. Like, that's, I don't think how most people will interact with it. But I think there is still... An appeal to authority there, an appeal yes. to like a desire to say that, you know, Anthony Fantano, I'm using his name largely just to have a useful example, like that nothing against him yeah, or anything. Absolutely. But he is he is the biggest example in the culture right now. Yes, he is a huge name in that field at this particular cultural moment. Anthony Fantano has an image and a reputation as an expert liker of music. Yes. He is better at liking music than most people are. That's not a thing. Yes. <laughs> most people will recognize that it, his taste or anyone's taste is still fundamentally subjective. And I, but there's still, especially when you get like critical consensus, there starts to be this idea that these are, you know, the good albums because, you know, each person is bringing their own subjective perspective but all of them are looking at it from all these different angles and they keep giving it a 10 out of 10. So at some point, maybe that's just all there is to see is that it's great. I think that like nobody sort of holds more sway in creating, you know, what is the cultural canon than critics. Yeah. Like I think critics yeah. are the ones and they're not the only ones creating cultural canon. Obviously the musicians play a big part in creating cultural yeah. canon, but also, you know, like, promoters, radio DJs, yeah. Spotify, playlist curators. Also, um, actually, another good one for cultural yeah. canon is music directors in films and stuff like that. But generally, sort of what is established as the cultural canon and what kind of people discuss and start to think of as the great albums of our time. And in general, you know, the, the great music of yeah. any time 
but specifically sort of in the modern yeah. sort of post-60s Things. world, the yeah. critical consensus is sort of what ends up defining canon. And often you end up having these really weird sort of things where, you know, if you look at a lot of the bands, famously, Rolling Stone magazine skewered Led Zeppelin in early reviews. And then this sort of cultural consensus emerged. And then in the later sort of, you know, revisiting of these albums, these albums are suddenly you know, different writers, obviously, but still under the yeah. mandate of the same institution, reevaluated and given this, oh no, this album was always a great album. We just didn't, you know, know it at the time yeah. or whatever. And I, I always find that stuff a little interesting and sort of disingenuous because I think there's a weird ebb and flow with reviewers between creating consensus and sort of retroactively following consensus. And it's a it's an interesting sort of dichotomy that goes on. Yeah, and I think a lot of... Because you're talking about, like, shaping cultural canons. And you're right that critics are not the only people who do that. But I think they are operating at a different level from most of those other agents. Yes. Like, if you look at radio DJs, what radio DJs control is what people hear. But that's not really what a canon is, right? Like, if we talk about, like, the great albums of our time, we're not talking about the most streamed albums on Spotify. We're not talking about the songs that get played most. We're talking about, often we're talking about things that are, that have credibility because they're, quote unquote, like, underground or whatever. Like, things that people don't, like, hidden gems. Like, the things that get that 10 out of 10 rating, but, like, no one's ever really listened to. Those are the ones that really become iconic members of the canon a lot of the time. Like, you look at if radio DJs and promoters could push something to the point where it became a member of the cultural canon, Justin Bieber would be there by now. Yeah. Well, he was very popular with a lot of his audience, and, well, there was a huge media push behind him. Like, rock critics especially, but, like, you know, a lot of the the critical sphere, like, historically has been in rock but I say historically, not going back to like the 19th century or anything, obviously, yeah. but like a lot of the modern critical landscape is sort of grown out of rock criticism. The cultural origins of the modern criticism landscape are born specifically out of that 60s yeah. rock magazine criticism. Like that's sort of what yeah. shaped this this vision. And, and you know, it's it's a thing too where because of that and because there is sort of a, a a narrow influence on who really gets to be a critic there's a sort of filtering of cultural consensus yeah. through this right yeah i think that's that's a lot of it and again like not not just you know who gets to be a critic in terms of and there there're certainly demographic factors involved and i'm not going to pretend there aren't there are also like stylistic factors involved there are people who like the things that critics, current critics say are good have an easier time establishing themselves as also experts and at liking things and experts in taste because their taste matches what we already think of as expert taste. And so it becomes easier for people who 
after they gained that cultural consensus, liked Led Zeppelin to become established music critics. Whereas, you know, if like in the mid seventies, I was writing articles about how Led Zeppelin was actually a very bad and boring band. I would have a hard time getting those published in major music publications. But yeah, you would have a hard time getting published in Rolling Stone with an article that says Led Zeppelin is bad and boring, actually. To this day, that would still be hard. There is a reinforcement of those cultural views through the filtration of who gets to express their opinions as if they are an expert at having them. Yeah, the idea of being an expert at having opinions is the thing that I think rubs both of us a little bit the wrong way with this. And I say this as someone who my beginnings in music writing, like the first music writing I ever did was writing music reviews for my college paper. And, you know, I, for a couple of years, I wrote music reviews and that is like a lot of, a lot of the foundation of things that I learned for polyphonic. So I'm, I'm coming at this from the perspective of somebody who has sort of done it. And, you know, I think we're, sort of beating around the bush a little, but ultimately, like, to kind of state it outright, I have no issue with any specific critic, and, you know, I don't really have an issue with the existence of this musical criticism, you know, in general, but personally, I, I kind of, if you'll excuse the language a little, I kind of think it's bullshit. It irks me the sort of amount of cultural weight that is put on just opinions. Uh, And there's nothing wrong with having opinions about music. Everyone should have opinions about music. But yeah, this idea that somebody, somebody's opinions, especially on a sort of quality standpoint, I do think there's a lot of other things, you know, the best critics, uh, and I'll read, album reviews and pieces of music criticism and stuff like that. And the best stuff tends to be, in my mind, stuff that, like, I don't really care about the ultimate is this good, is this bad of it. The best stuff is when critics are able to sort of situate it culturally for me. Be like, this is, you know, this this album coming out means this. It exists in this cultural space. Whereas undue focus that I really don't like is put on sort of the idea of, yeah, like you said, that somebody can be better at having opinions. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it as well for me is that I am much more interested in someone's opinions about music that they chose to talk about. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like I think that a lot of times an album reviewer for a major publication will just be given an album to review. Or even someone like, you know, Anthony Fantano, who is, I assume, making these decisions himself, but he still, he has to publish regularly. I actually don't watch Anthony Fantano, so I, but I'm assuming he has a schedule. Yeah, me neither. But there's a certain hype cycle too, where, you know, when a big artist drops an album, there are certain yeah. critics that are, that are expected to have a take on it. Yeah. And Fantano- You just have to them. say something. Whereas yeah. like, if someone- takes an album that they love and like, oh, I need to talk about this. That feels much more organic to me. That feels much more interesting because then I get to explore why you wanted to. On that, like one of the things that happens when people are sort of pushed or encouraged 
uh, or whatever you want to call it to explore through this qualitative framework is there is a flattening of potential discussions. There's not really that many interesting conversations in media happening around music, which is a real shame because you can approach things a thousand ways without saying explicitly they are good or bad. Ultimately, the medium is the message yeah. and the medium of music reviews are a qualitative form. Whereas, you yeah. know, if it's just a, a piece where it's just someone talking about an album or talking about a song without the expectation of quality, that opens up to so much more. You know, it opens up to a lot more personal sort of things. And a lot yeah. of my favorite music writing is music writing that deals with how the writer has a personal relationship with the music because, you know, art's all about forming personal relationships. Yeah, I think this feeds into a potentially somewhat uncomfortable reality, which is that if we step back from the very specific definition we were using, you and I are both music critics. Yes. Like, I think that is fair to say. I think a lot of our work incorporates the question of, like, what is good music? We play the role of tastemakers whether or not we want to, and I don't think either of us really wants to, but we do. Yep. And th th there's an extent to which I like I do want to as well. Like I'm not going to pretend that there isn't there aren't things that I want to do with that platform. Yeah, you want to get every single human being on earth to listen to Jackson Brown. <laughs> yeah. Specifically song for Adam. Yes. I don't know if I've mentioned that on the podcast before, but I do like that song. Everyone listening to Song for Adam and Rob Zombie. Yeah, at the same time. <laughs> just hand them to the left and right. It'll work. <laughs> just any Rob Zombie song, they will all line up properly. At least equal, they'll all line up equally well. I, I think that that's a fair <laughs> assessment. I think they probably would all line up equally well. <laughs> there is an extent to which you and I are doing that. And I think that the distinction that I would make, and like I want to be clear with this, that I'm not saying I am better than people who don't do this, but the distinction that I would make between the work that you and I do and the work that someone like Anthony Fantano does is that, like you're saying, the central question of a review, of a, of a sort of narrow scope def defined review, the, the central question is, should you listen to this album or artist or song or whatever? That is, the rest of it is set up to build to that point and to support their conclusion. Whereas I think that yeah. the stuff that you and I do inevitably will push people to go listen to the music we talk about. This happens to me all the time where people are like, oh, now I have to go listen to the song again. Or, oh, I didn't like this song, but now I'm going to check it out because of what you told me about it or whatever. Like this happens very regularly to me. I assume it happens to you as well. Constantly. But like that question of, is this a good song for me, at least in my work, I try to take it largely for granted. Yeah. And this is the thing I've, I've said in some of my videos is I try and start from the assumption that all songs are good. Me too. Yeah. And, you know, I may not understand why they're good. And if I don't understand why they're good, then I shouldn't be the one talking about them. But I do start from the assumption that if I don't like a song, it's probably on me in some way. Yeah. That is an oversimplification of reality, right? Like there are reasons why I might not like a song that are external to me, but 
I think it's a useful framework nonetheless. Yeah. And I think that that framework is fundamentally at odds with the idea of, you know, traditional music criticism and review. And and I think something that is important to mention here is that a lot of people who do music criticism also do other forms of music journalism. Yeah. Like a lot of music writers will also be writing profiles on bands or writing personal essays on music or things like that. But it does seem like in the sort of like discourse online in in music circles that I run yeah. in and various things that I see, there's not nearly enough as many people talking about profiles or personal essays or these sort of things as there are, you know, you know, the number of people talking about that is much smaller than the number of people talking about reviews given by people or also by institutions. Yeah. And the sort of the, yeah. the institutional review idea is, you know, to me, that's something that's even more like icky than, you know, an individual than like Chris Gow or someone, something like that. Like, yeah. I mean, the fact that Chris Gow's now his site gives reviews on stuff, even though he's dead, like is is sure. something <laughs> like Ebert yeah. with film. Like uh I think I think I'm pretty sure Chris Gow's dead, right? Did I just accidentally kill I, him? Oh, he's not dead. He's not oh. dead. Sorry, Robert. Yeah, come on our podcast. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> he's 81, so people, you know, on his site are reviewing. And like things like, you know, Rolling Stone and NME and stuff like that, institutions reviewing yeah. something as quality is sort of even worse in my mind than just the typical frameworks of quality. Because when it is a person, there is sort of an implied opinion there. But when it is an institution, yeah. it creates this sense of authority. Yeah, if you say like Rolling Stone gave this album a uh, seven out of ten, that sounds like the entire company got yeah. together and talked it out. Yeah, and it it was definitely one person, but you know that it sort of feels like there is a consensus behind that that you don't get when you say even someone like Robert Criscow said it got a seven out of ten. That still sounds like a person. Yeah, uh, but I think sort of what you're getting at there, if I'm understanding correctly, and if not, something that I wanted to get to is that there are a lot of kinds of music journalism going on. Yes. Criticism and reviews wind up as sort of the bread and butter of the industry. Yes, that's Like, exactly this is a it. thing that I think about in my work a lot, where, like, I have my song analysis series, and I also do videos about cool music theory scholarship that's going on. But, like, my channel could survive just fine on just the song analyses. It could not survive on just the scholarship videos. And so the image of what 12-tone is becomes shaped by the song analysis series. Yeah. Because that's the one that I definitely have to keep doing. And I, I like doing it, to be clear. Anyone listening, I do enjoy making those videos. But it is very much the image of what 12-tone is. In the same way that like, when we talk about music journalism, I think for the most part, reviews and criticism are the image of what that is. Yeah. Even though, like you say, there are like artist profiles, interviews, all sorts of other types of writing, but that isn't the heart of it. Yeah, and I think one of the issues that comes with that is specifically there's there's not really, like there is all sorts of writing. There's not as much of it these days, and there's really not like 
there's not a lot of innovation in it because the bread and butter is reviews. And, you know, yeah. like I know that if I wanted to tomorrow, I could start doing album reviews and I could yeah. release album reviews and it would probably like I don't think they would be my most watched videos, but I think they would probably outperform an average polyphonic video if I just released a video, yeah. uh, uh, you know, just released classic album review, Led Zeppelin 4 or something like that. I yeah. think that would outperform and would also take, you know... And it'd be so much easier to yes, make. exactly. Would take way less time, way less effort, and would outperform yeah. most of what I do. You could just do it on camera, even. Yeah. And one thing that, like, we were, like, half an hour into this, and I probably should have emphasized sooner, you were talking earlier about how there are a thousand different ways to talk about music. And yeah. that, you know, thousand is a made up number. We both know that. I'm not going to list them. But like, there are... Number one. A lot of different ways to talk about music. Countless ways to do it. And like, criticism and review is a valid one. Yes. Right? Like, I I don't think either Noah or I, certainly not I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, although you did just say yes to the thing I said. Yeah. So I think I can. Uh, but I don't think either of us is saying that these shouldn't exist. Yeah. Or that these are destroying music or anything. But, like, it's more that... They take up too much room in the cultural conversation. They take up too much room. And also, like, a bit of it, honestly, like, if I'm being fully, entirely honest with myself, is I just don't like them very much. Yep. I don't find them very yep. interesting. And so I want them to take up less of the cultural conversation for selfish reasons. Because I would prefer to engage with other kinds of music media that are harder to find because of the prevalence of criticism and review. And like, I, I'll own that. That's entirely, that's on me. That is a reality of my life. Yeah, I feel very similar. Well, and it's incredibly frustrating because often I also feel like, you know, there will be pieces that offer interesting perspectives and are interesting kind of cultural objects yeah. that in order to justify their existence need to sort of force themselves into the shell of a review. And I don't think that's good for anybody. You know, like, no. I, I think a lot of sort of, like, retrospective album reviews, like, what they're, what they're really doing is just kind of talking about and exploring and celebrating this album. But so often, you know, especially with, like, an institution like yeah. Pitchfork, you know, you look at you look at Pitchfork. Generally, I think I'm. God, you said that with so much disdain. I did. I yeah. The the name, <laughs> just uh, Pitchfork. And we've talked about this before, but I really don't like anything that forces music into the the sort of parameters of numerical value. And Pitchfork yeah. is one of the absolute sort of worst culprits for this. That's hence the sort of sigh. I don't think they're. I don't think they're a bad organization. Um, you know, like no. I think honestly, I've read some really great profiles in Pitchfork and they they do write some really interesting stuff, but I think that their framework and the fact that the number is big at the top of the review, it's such a big yeah. thing with Pitchfork. And yeah, because of that, so much of their writing that could be, you know, really interesting like one of my favorite like bad pitchfork reviews is there's a review for uh, a band called algiers who are really incredible um and are sort yeah. of this like interesting genre bending like really really hard to describe brilliant act 
But so much of this review talking about this album, you know, it seems like there's a lot of things in the review that are sort of interested in what's going on musically, but so much of it is rooted in does this reviewer like it? And so they end up writing, you know, very sort of like pompous, like uh, criticism of it that, you know, Algiers ended up like uh, quoting that in one of their songs, which is a great sort of (laughs) clapback moment. But it feels like that whole that none of that needed to happen if it weren't for the framework of the review. It could have just been like you can you can write stuff about bands and music that you don't like and write interesting stuff about it. I, I've done it before. I've done it many times before. Yeah. I can tell you right now, you know, maybe this will shatter some visions of me to those listening, but one of my most viewed videos is on Hotel California, and I friggin' hate the Eagles. I can't stand <laughs> them. You hit on something there in the middle of that that I want to draw out. Yeah. Because it's a really subtle, but I think really important point, which is putting the number at the beginning. Yes. And this is, I think... Again, we talk about like medium as message, et cetera, et cetera, all of that. In journalism, in print media, is basic principle of the inverted pyramid, which I, yeah. I'm sure I don't have to explain to you, yep. but just for anyone listening uh, who doesn't, the idea is basically you lead with the most important stuff. And as it goes, you get into like the finer and finer details that aren't really the important takeaways. Because that way, if someone stops reading halfway through, they've already gotten the main point. Before you've read a single word of this review, before you have any idea where the reviewer is coming from, before you have any idea what the music sounds like, before they've said a single thing, they tell you it's an 8 out of 10. Then everything you experience after that is filtered through the lens of 8 out of 10 being the most important information. It's all justification for why it was 8 out of 10. Whereas if you write the exact same article but you put that at the bottom and say like, finally, in conclusion, based on everything I've said and based on my experience and my journey through in, like interacting with this music, I think it's an eight out of 10. That changes not just the structure of the article, it changes the narrative. It changes the way that the article comes across. It changes the way that the argument is perceived and the argument is structured as well. It changes what the point of your argument was Yeah, from trying to justify a decision that you have already stated to trying to work out what your decision is. And it can be the exact same article. Moving it to the bottom will probably change the shape of the article anyway, but even if it doesn't, it changes the frame of reference for everything that happens in there, and it de-emphasizes the idea of the score in exchange for emphasizing the idea of the experience and the argument. Yes, And so often, I mean, especially in an age of sort of declining attention spans, people will just go in for the score and sort of take whatever they will from that. You and I both don't really like calling music bad. Like, and we've made our opinions on quality pretty clear. But even if you do think something is bad, I think that there are a lot of ways that you can draw meaning and value from a conversation where ultimately you're negative about an album. I think there's a lot of ways to do that, that just get lost if the first thing people see is, uh, you know, oh, this is a bad album. And and generally, I feel like when that is the the intro and the first thing, there's also a bit of an I know for me, like when you see it's a bad review, 
there's a bit of an inclination to be like, oh, well, why should I read this review? Unless if it's one of these bad reviews that seems to be sort of like famously skewering for the memes and stuff like that. Oh, it'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't I don't like I don't think that is a positive way to engage with art at all. Like tearing anyone's art down. I don't. I don't see the value in that. I can see the value in saying, yeah. I don't like this. Here's why this doesn't work. And, you know, often it's here's what could have worked. I think that that's, that's yeah. plenty interesting. But the sort of skewering bad reviews, which, again, when you, you know, open something up and there's a one out of 10 or, you know, or a one star, like right yeah. at the top, it kind of invites a sort of criticism that's more of you're almost gawking at how bad this is yeah like oh this is gonna be fun yeah yeah this is gonna gonna enjoy watching them tear this piece to shreds yeah exactly but yeah i think i do want to like also take some time in this to highlight i think some of the positive aspects of criticism and review because i think you and I, I think, are both roughly on the same page that, like, we're not huge fans. It does serve a cultural purpose. Yes, there's a lot of value to it. There's a lot of value, and there's done well, especially, like, people who are good at it, like, I think deserve credit and praise for that. A large portion of it is ties back to what you were talking about earlier, where, you know, back in the day, at least, checking out new music wasn't free. And it's still not, is sort of is is an important point, but I'll I'll get to that in a minute. But like checking out, buying a new album or going to a concert or whatever, like these were financial decisions you had to make. And ideally what you want is information from friends, which are like people who you are in community with, people who you understand as people and not simply as media figures. I think those are much more useful recommendations. But as sort of like the first line to try and get a basic sense of like, you know, should I buy Led Zeppelin four? Is that worth my money? Rolling Stone says no. So I guess I'm not going to, it's a terrible album forever. That will never change. I'm sure having that sense is a useful barometer, a useful way of like double checking. Like if I spend 10 bucks on this album or whatever, however much albums cost at whatever particular time period you're living in, in this hypothetical, is that a good investment or should I do a different one instead? And you're not going to get a perfect answer, but you're also not going to get nothing. Like, I think that's important to recognize is that people's opinions on music are different. They are not uncorrelated. Yes. There is a reason that there are albums that most people within a certain culture and like genre culture agree are good. And part of that is the process of canonization, which is bad. But part of that is also that the albums are good, right? Like I'm working on a video right now about London Calling. And there's a pretty broad consensus that London Calling is a good album. Yeah. And the reason for that is that London Calling is a really good album. Yeah. Well, and I think kind of on that, I think one of the real values that I get out of a lot of music criticism often is going to read good reviews of albums that I already believe are good. You can kind of be like, oh, like, why is it that I like this album? What is it about this album that sort of draws me in and attracts me? Or even just like, 
it's nice to see media talking about something you love and just reminding you about the yeah. great things or showing you different things you love about it or placing it in a context. Like, I think that that's yeah. all really, really great stuff. And I think that there are a whole lot of ways that you can deepen your experience of something yeah. by like reading something that you don't really care about the final result for. Like, I think that that's something yeah. where I think in the dream world or, you know, sort of as imagined, often the thought is you look at review, then go listen to album. But I think just as often the reality is uh, you listen to album, come up with your opinion and then go see what the reviewers think about it. And I think that that's a perfectly yeah. solid and valid way to go about it, too. And that can provide a lot of value. It can also highlight where you disagree with a reviewer, right? I told this story before, uh, I think like an episode ago, uh, but like I was reading a review of uh, Clippings, There Existed an Addiction to Blood, mm -hmm. and the reviewer panned it for having a vocal delivery that was extremely flat and, you know, not moving and very monotonous. And I was like, that that killed the drama of the piece. And that is not my experience. Yeah. That is that is a true description of what David Diggs's voice sounds like in that on that album. But that is not my experience of the effect that that artistic choice has. Yeah. This partly comes down to a question of like, you know, does the reviewer understand the genre? Does the reviewer understand the art well enough to be speaking about it? And I don't know. I'm not like going to say this person didn't, but like that is a significant question to these sorts of things. Like that is why for instance, you wouldn't want me writing reviews of, I don't know, dance hall tracks. Yeah. Like, I don't know enough about dance hall to speak about it with authority. And so my reviews are mostly just going to be like, I didn't get this. Six out of ten. And, like, that's that's on me. That's me being a bad reviewer. And that is, again, I think an important point in, is that there is skill to being a good reviewer. Even if, like, being an expert opinion haver is nothing... Being an expert opinion sharer, critic and reviewer. Yeah, a lot of that is being a qualified and skilled analyst. Yeah. And understanding what makes the music tick and understanding, again, like what makes that particular genre of music tick. Because again, I, I could write pretty good reviews of, you know, hard rock. Yeah. That is a genre that I know very intimately is a genre that I grew up with. It's a genre that I still listen to most of the time when I choose to listen to music, uh, when I choose which music I'm listening to, rather. And that is something that, like, I could write pretty solid reviews of most of those styles of music, even if I haven't heard this particular album or song before. But again, you don't want to just throw me into some random thing because I don't have an expert. And so, like, really good reviewers, people who review widely also have to listen very widely and also have to understand very widely a lot of different genres and a lot of different genre conventions in order to be able to justify the arguments they're making, even if, again, those arguments are fundamentally entirely subjective. That also brings me to something, an issue that I often have with sort of reviewers where, again, it's an issue in the sort of function of how music media works yeah. is how fast reviewers tend to need to turn stuff around. And like yeah. the reality is, you know, I have albums that I love that I, you know, would, if I were to write a review now, would give a 10 out of 10 or whatever that took me 
years that took me dozens of listens to get into reviewers will like revisit albums and stuff like that like that is part of the function of that but i also do think that there's there's a, a hurry to sort of get things out within you know a time period and a framework that can really sort of stunt the savoring of an album that i think that's something that i struggle with a lot also because we're in the in the sort of good side of reviews portion of the episode. Um, I interjected with that. But another good thing that I wanted to mention (laughs) is that one of the things that I think their role is and a role that they do well is creating cultural conversation. It's interesting to be able to sit down with a music friend and be like, hey, did you see that Pitchfork gave this album, you know, a 5.4? And, you know, in disagreeing with that, you can discuss with someone else and figure out why you like it and why you disagree with them. I don't tend to think, especially with artistic opinions, I I don't tend to think that they're, you know, things that people have as organically as a lot of people think. Like, I think a lot of the time you really need to sit down and think about why you like something to figure out how much you like it or something like that. And reviews can be a good place to create that sort of reflection necessary to understanding yourself and understanding your own relationship with a piece of art better. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fundamentally the job of all music journalism. Yes. Is to open conversations. And, you know, anytime you watch a 12-tone video and then go talk with someone at in any frame of reference or any whatever, like, about it, or even just think about it, think about the arguments and see if they make sense with your experience... I count that as a win. That's me doing my job. Another thing that reviews can be really good at is providing a gateway into music you don't understand. Like I think, again, to use the dance hall example, because I I already used it and I don't want to admit to not knowing a second genre. If I wanted to get into dance hall, I think a pretty good way to do that would be to see which dance hall records are getting good reviews from expert dance hall reviewers. Obviously not just like yeah. random posts online or whatever, but like see who who the respected critics are in that field and see which albums they say are good because that probably reflects a lot of people who listen to Dancehall and love Dancehall's opinions about which what the good Dancehall records are. And so it's it's sort of a shortcut into figuring out how to appreciate a genre It's not necessarily the end point, but it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be a way like if I really if I quickly want to get into this, what are five albums? And, you know, if I happen to have a friend who knows the genre and they can give me their personal recommendations, great. But if I don't, this is a useful way to sort of create, I guess, a proxy friend. Yeah. I don't love describing reviewers that particular way. I think that that has a lot of complicated implications, but you know what I mean. Getting someone who knows what they're talking about, who or who is assumed to know what they're talking about in regards to a a thing you don't know that much about, and then seeing what they say I should check out. And like I I would never really do that for a genre that I already understand. Like again, to use hard rock as an example, I'm not gonna read hard rock reviews. I'm just not. I trust myself to listen to albums and come to my own conclusions about whether or not they are good examples of the hard rock genre. Like, I have that capacity. I have that skill. I have honed it for decades at this point. Yeah. But, you know, if I don't, it's a useful 
way to get in. And also, like, I think that, you know, with within genre, there is still value for, like, the reasons you're saying in terms of, like, having a conversation t- to start. Like, reading a review of Riot by Paramore. Like, I have a lot of opinions about Riot by Paramore. I love that album. It's a great album. But, like, reading a review could potentially give me either new things to like about it or show me places where I might disagree with a reviewer about what they like about it or what they don't like about it and give me a deeper understanding of why I like that. And again, open me up to have other conversations with other people about the work. I mean, I think in the end, we're kind of coming around, but I, I want to, again, you, you you said this earlier, yeah. but I really want to underline, like, I'm I'm not trying to create beef with any album reviewers. Like, I don't, yeah. I, do, I don't have a big sort of, moral or aesthetic issue with the album review. And I think that there's a lot of things that it does well. It's just the yeah. the overexposure of it as a medium that is the problem. Yeah. As much as there are a lot of people who do very good album reviews, it's not that hard to do bad ones. Yes. And so there's also a lot of that. A lot of the bad ones tend to be over-reliant on knocking music down. You know, like I think yeah. it's very, I think it's very, it's it's pretty easy to skewer an album. I think it's a lot harder to write a good review celebrating and specifically sort of like, I, I think I think determining what makes something good is actually a really difficult task. Um, yeah. You know, because you've sort of got a if limited. It wasn't, I wouldn't have a job. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of the bad criticism, not always, I'm sure there's lots of bad criticism that's very celebratory, yeah. but I think a lot of it tends toward using sort of the, I don't want to say cruelty. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's the wrong word. I, I think that like there is sort of a sense of detaching the art from both its creator and its audience yeah. in order to show off how smart you are for not liking it. Yes. And like, that's, that's a, a much more specific problem than music criticism, right? Like that, that is a very specific vein of that. Yeah. And, you know, but it is still not necessarily incentivized but certainly not disincentivized yeah and it is a lot easier to do than a really good thoughtful review even of music you like it's it's i think easier to write a review tearing down a piece of music you hate than to write a good one building up a piece really understanding and analyzing the um, piece of music that you love but this is sort of why i just as a rule throughout all of my public platform, whatever, like, I just don't say bad things about other people's art. Yeah, every now and then I do. Yeah, I'm okay with, I'm okay with skewering the eagles. I think that they're, I think that's punching up. (laughs) Yeah, no, they they deserve it. (laughs) And they would be the first to tell you that. Because it's so easy, it's very tempting. It's also a very good and quick way to establish yourself as having the good taste, I yeah. think more so than liking the good stuff, is demonstrating that you dislike the bad stuff, right? Like, I can be out here and be like, Led Zeppelin is great, and people will be like, cool, okay. But if I'm out here like, Nickelback is bad! Ah. I, I don't know what that voice was, but um, that's what people sound like when they don't like Nickelback, I guess. It was, it was your drive-time radio DJ voice. 
Yeah. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. We've talked about this in many different contexts before. And like, I don't know how relevant it is to this context, but I already talked myself into this corner, so I'm going to bring it up, is like the concept of creating in-groups and out-groups. And I think that good music criticism is about inviting people into the in-group, and bad music criticism is demonstrating that you are not in the out-group. Yeah, I think that's a really great way of putting it. But yeah, so just everyone writing music reviews do that from now on, and yeah. I think that's a really like like great way of summing it up. You should have just said that at the beginning, and then we wouldn't have had to yeah. talk for an hour. Well, but we had to get that uh, watch time retention. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, people won't listen to our podcast anymore. All right, yeah. I mean, I think that that's... Do you have any, any more thoughts? I think we've sort of beaten a dead horse yeah. a little here. Yeah, I think, I think I ran out of thoughts about 45 minutes ago and have just been saying words since but yeah great well in that case i think we can just uh we can just leave it with yeah so read music criticism or don't i don't really care ultimately yeah. and if it if it brings you joy do it yeah but if you're reading music criticism try and balance that out by watching as many polyphonic videos as you can only the good the ones though, here. don't watch the bad yeah. ones or the bad ones yeah. that make me money you're allowed to watch the bad yeah. ones that make me money obviously yeah no re read my polyphonic review site where i review every one of noah's ooh. videos ooh uh, <laughs> i give them all a b plus that's uh, fair good good effort good <laughs> effort <laughs> probably accurate Room for improvement but <laughs> Except the one where you misdescribed what triplets are, that got an A+. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. The one with yeah. 16 million views. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thank you to everyone for listening. As always, y'all are great. Yeah, except for one of you. And you, you can figure out which one it is. <laughs> I give all of you a 10 out of 10, except yeah. for the one who you know yeah. who you are. They, they they know who they are. And, they know and you, they yeah, you know what you did. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.